If you were with us uh, last week, we looked at a few of the narratives in the wilderness, chapters 15, 16, and the beginning of 17. They had no water, God gave them water. They had no food, God gave them food. Then they had no water again, and God gave them water. And there was the rippling effect throughout the community of complaining and grumbling. Even though they had just sang the song of Moses that was all about the redemption that they had just received. Uh, This morning we come to a couple more narratives which has a similar flow to the entire book of Exodus where we are seeing again a picture of redemption which will be our first point this morning in the first battle since the Exodus and God will bring victory to his people. But secondly, there will be a time of reflection on not simply that battle, but all that God has done for His people between Moses and his father-in-law Jethro. But then we will see a response as Jethro challenges gently and respectfully Moses' leadership to say that there are shepherding needs throughout the people that need to be tended to by a plurality of leadership, a plurality of elders, because people need to be told what to do and how to live as becomes a follower of Christ, as we would say in our membership vows. So there's a response to the redemption. That's the flow of the entire book of Exodus and the flow of the entire Bible. We've had multiple chapters of redemption. Multiple. We're approaching the Ten Commandments. And the case law, which to many can seem like abject legalism. And it would be had the book not started with complete redemption, unmerited favor by God. That whole flow is right here in these two narratives. So firstly, uh, well, this, this, this chapter going into chapter 18 is connected as well. Just a brief explanation. Genesis 36, 16 tells us Amalek was a grandson of Esau. So he's related to Abraham and Isaac, distantly. Uh, Genesis 25 says Midian, who's a relative of Jethro, was a son of Abraham. So as one of these descendants of Abraham is coming to battle, one is coming to offer help, and so there's a helpful contrast of how God is dealing with outsiders coming into the people of God as well. But firstly, I want to look at the redemption, uh, chapter 17, verses 8 to 16, and looking at the nature of redemption. Amalek comes to fight the Israelites at Rephidim, which we saw last week was where they still were after the last miraculous provision of water by God. So for the Israelites, this is a completely defensive battle. Uh, they are extremely vulnerable. They've already ran out of food that they brought with them to Egypt, which is why God's raining down manna and quail six days of the week, so that they would have sustenance. They have no way of providing for themselves. They obviously can't be fighting a battle which is why God led them through the wilderness in the first place, rather than straight to Canaan. Joshua shows up for the first time as a military leader. Moses tells him 
he'll be on the mountain with his staff during this battle. Uh, He holds up his staff, and this brings success, until he lowers his staff, which starts to bring defeat. Why is this the case, and why on earth is he up on a hill? The text doesn't tell us. But we can tell that Moses' staff was used directly by God to spiritually and physically defeat Pharaoh and his gods earlier in the book. In this short military campaign, it's clear that God uses this staff again to bring His people redemption. And this is nearly miraculous but also includes Aaron and her, who are briefly mentioned, holding up Aaron's hands, uh, Moses' hands when they falter. All of this, again, is highlighting several things. We can't save ourselves. As Bob was praying with regards to our Reformation heritage, it's by grace through faith alone. It's a free and unmerited gift That's everything that we've been told up to this point in the book of Exodus. These people did not save themselves. None of us have saved ourselves. And also the Christian life is not done on an island in isolation by ourselves. As Moses' hands fall, he needs the help of God's people to obey the Lord as God Himself will bring redemption. God is the one who brings the redemption, and at the same time, we can't grow in the Christian faith by ourselves. We see this nature of redemption all in verses 8 to 13, but then I want to focus on the God of the redemption in verses 14 to 16. Uh, It's a very important word from God to Moses and then to Joshua regarding the future of the Amalekites. The reference to blotting them out will take a while as they are around during the time of the judges. King David will fight them in 1 Samuel 30. There's a remnant during Hezekiah's reign in 1 Chronicles 4. But this news is delivered to Joshua because he's the next military commander and the leader of Israel after Moses. You see that at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. This all speaks to the threat to God's sovereignty by his enemies as they attack his people. And the reality that God will still bring redemption. This battle is remembered, the first battle after Exodus, after the Exodus. It's remembered in a book and an altar built with the name, The Lord is My Banner. It's reflective of Moses raising his staff as a banner on the hill as they're winning. Verse 16 uh, has somewhat different translations from the ESV to the NIV, uh, but it's probably a reference to the Amalekites trying to put their hand on the banner of the Lord to lower it so that they would win, but they couldn't. They couldn't defeat Yahweh. Moses has the help of Aaron and Hur to lift up the staff of God reflective of his own power, and he defeats the enemies of God's people. And such will be the case as the last Amalekite in the Old Testament is Haman the Agagite, who is a descendant of the Amalekite king Agag. I could hardly say all that. 
So it actually does come to pass, eventually, that the enemies of God's people will be dealt with. They will refuse to repent. They refuse to surrender. But God is the the one who redeems all of His people. As the staff is raised, and they say that this altar is, the Lord is my banner. Not the gods of Egypt. Not the gods that we are going to encounter in the land of Canaan, which will be plenty. Not not the gods of wealth and power and success. But the Lord is my banner. He's the only thing that I need. The only true God. Again, all of this is a wonderful picture of the redemption that we have been seeing throughout the book. The provisions from last week in the wilderness. The power of Almighty God and His strength on behalf of His people. But there is a moment here of needed reflection on those things. Which is when Jethro enters the scene. There is a connection on this reflection from Moses to Jethro on that battle that just happened and everything before it. In the reflection, in chapter 18, verses 1 to 12, it helps us to understand who is God bringing together as this nation? Who does God bring together as His people in these redemptive acts? Much rich history in these first seven verses because we're reminded that Jethro is a Midianite and yet he is Moses' father-in-law. Now there's a bit of backstory that we're a little confused on. We don't know when Moses sent his wife uh, Zipporah and the boys home. We didn't even know he had a second son. Uh, But the point here is that we have an Israelite raised in an Egyptian home married into a Midianite family. So he's going home to his adoptive culture for the first time since going back to Egypt and witnessing the plagues and the exodus and the miraculous provisions in the wilderness and this last battle. We're reminded of his son Gershom, meaning sojourner, which is everything that this man has been about. He doesn't have a steady home He doesn't have one culture that he belongs to. And so that's why he named his son Gershom, or sojourner, traveler. We're now told he has another son, Eliezer, referencing God's help, which has been, again, the story throughout this man's whole life. God is bringing together a multicultural, diverse community of sojourners to whom he has promised to help in redemption. This very meeting between Jethro and Moses was even foretold back in Exodus 3.12 when God told Moses when he went to Midian at the burning bush that he will bring them out of Egypt and they will serve him on this mountain. He's come back to that mountain just as God had promised. Now he has a family. But these are the kinds of people that God is bringing in As I just said at the very beginning, Jethro and Amalek are are related to Abraham. Neither one of them is related to Jacob. And the promise to this people 
was to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants that they would be God's holy nation, a royal priesthood, and would bless the nations. And yet we're being told there's other people, distant relatives of Abraham, maybe not related to Isaac or Jacob, who are brought in. Multicultures, multiple different kinds of people under the banner. The Lord is my banner. Not my language or skin color or race or country of origin. But how has he brought these people together? And again, this is all just reflective on this redemption. And this is where it gets heavy in verses 8 through 12 of chapter 18. How, Moses is reflecting with Jethro, how has this redemption been brought to us? Verses 8 to 10 simply record Moses telling Jethro all that God had done to the Egyptians and all that he did along the way to now, which is again a connection not simply from what Moses experienced after Exodus 3 when he left Midian and left Jethro, but what, he, what happened a few days ago in this battle. But he's reflecting on the Exodus event, on all of the plagues, on the power of, of God to defeat the greatest army on the planet at the time, on the ability of God to provide water from a bitter lake, manna from heaven that could have no other explanation but coming from heaven, quail, all of these things being provided six days a week and they stop on the Lord's day on the Sabbath so that the people can worship and rest not have to go to work, worry about the worries of the day. Water from a rock. All of this is a reflective moment where Moses doesn't just go the rest of his life and forget the past in amnesia. But he has a spiritual memory of who God is and what he has done for him and his people. But there's also the reality that he's reflecting these, these very events to someone else. Uh, Dr. Chris Wright points out the verb in verse 8 is used to declare in a public recounting of some event in detail. It's the same verb used in Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God. Moses And we not only need to reflect on the redemption that we have received, which is hopefully what we do daily in in our individual private study, but also in our families, but we do that that's what we do every Lord's Day. We're reflecting on the redemption that we have been given by grace through faith. But then he tells someone about it. You can't Tell someone about what you don't know. There's this declarative response in a sense from Moses to Jethro to say, you need to know this, father-in-law. You need to hear. Jethro has already heard. As with most of the people in the land of Canaan, all of these events, he says, I want you to tell me. And Moses says, I will. And he tells him everything 
that happened. And you look at the response of Jethro. He rejoices, and it mentions several times the deliverance or the rescue that God had brought. The content of what Moses is delivering isn't, look at how great a leader I am. Look at how wonderful I've done with God's people. It's all about God. All about his redemption. Jethro may have already been a worshiper of Yahweh, but this confirms his faith even more as he says in verse 11, now I know. That's repeated in Psalm 135.5, for I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods because I've not only heard it by the news, but someone came to me and told me because they know the content of their redemption, they have reflected. Which is what we need to do. We need, as we saw last week, to make the commitment, as it is commanded in us in Scripture, to not run after manna and quail on the seventh day. God said rest. God said worship. God wants us to reflect on the content of our redemption We could share it with someone. We could encourage each other in it. But all of us are going to struggle with spiritual amnesia. And because of the sin and the suffering that's in our life, forget how good God is. Unless we spend time reflecting in humble obedience on who He is and what He's done for us. But finally, there is a larger corporate response to this redemption that Jethro brings to Moses towards the end of chapter 18. Verses 13 through 27. What is the corporate response of God's people to this redemption after they've reflected on everything that God has done? Jethro is hearing all of this from Moses. Then he witnesses Moses trying to deal with the conflict and the disputes of God's people. Now understand that we don't know anything about that at Christ's covenant. A whole group of people that proclaim to know God are in conflict with each other. I don't know. What is, what is that like? I'm being facetious. Of course, there's thousands of people in this nation. There's going to be conflict. And Moses has sat there dealing with all of it by himself. And Jethro, an outsider who's been converted from Midian, Gently and with respect, says this needs to be the response of Moses and God's people, a delegation to godly men. There has to be a delegation. The people have grown. Moses is not able to effectively minister to everyone all the time. Uh, Verse 22 says that he needs to have help bearing the burden of this large group of sinners. What exactly does he need help with? What kind of disputes are there? If you look after the Ten Commandments, we're going to be dealing with the case law for several chapters. And that gives you ample opportunity to look at all the problems and the disputes and the conflict that will exist amongst this young nation. They are many, and there are thousands of people. God's people have problems. We have conflict. We need it to be dealt with. Deuteronomy 1, verses 8 through 18, will reflect all of this again, where Moses recommends wise 
and understanding and experienced men. Verse 21 in our text, the men are to be trustworthy, they're to hate a bribe, and willing to bear a burden with Moses. Now there are many things that are not a direct connection between their uh, circumstances and ours, because these are also legal matters that they're having to deal with, uh, with no court system in Old Testament Israel. But this is Presbyterian church government in the Old Testament. There is a plurality of leadership shared between Moses and other men, which is where we get this whole idea of what we do in our current form of church government. Moses can't deal with it on his own. He has to be able to trust other men who know the redemption, who have reflected on that redemption themselves, who are trusted in the community, who won't be bribed into sin, whose banner is only Yahweh, who want to sacrifice their energy and time and bear a burden. That's a model for how to run a church, for how to run a denomination. And is why we do what we do. But what exactly is the delegation about? It is about dealing with the details of daily life. The delegation is for the shepherding and encouraging of the people and applying God's Word to all the details of daily life. Verse 20 says, Warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. That's general intentionally. If there is a conflict, it needs to be dealt with. It needs to be helped. We do this through our session of elders in the PCA or in any Presbyterian form of church government. What is the goal? Verse 23, that everyone goes home in peace, in shalom. That sin is dealt with, that there is repentance, that there is forgiveness, that any, any moment in the life of our particular church, there may be a question or a dispute with regards to one ministry team over here, another ministry team over here, another marriage over here, and I'm already overwhelmed. But that's life amongst sinners. And there has to be other men leading their families well, able and willing to bear a burden to deal with all of that mess. Because you have mess, and I have mess, and we need help. And that's best done through a plurality of leaders. Who makes the decisions on this ministry or that ministry or who's dealing with this problem or that problem? Well, myself and another elder, maybe two other elders, maybe all of us. Handling disputes, working through the BCO part two, holding all of, all of us accountable to our membership vows. As we all hold up the banner, hopefully, the Lord is my banner. Nothing else. That's what I've committed to. That's what you've committed to. The Lord is my banner. Nothing else. How is it that we can respond and live like this, though? How, how in our frailty 
in our grumbling and complaining like the Israelites, where we don't want to spend the time to reflect on the redemption that we have been given, where we don't want to submit to leadership, where we want to fight and win all the time. How can we respond like this? Because no one held up the weak hands of Jesus Christ on the cross. He was forsaken. For cantankerous, grumbling sheep like you and me to pay for all of our sins. As he hung there, no one came to help. No one lifted up his hands. He was betrayed. He was unjustly murdered. He died the death that we should have died. That we would have payment for all of our sins eternally. That we would be set free from the penalty of our sin. He lifted the banner. The Lord is my banner. As the second person of the Trinity, giving up his glory and his wealth so that we would not only be set free and have the hope of the gospel for all eternity, but so we would help each other in this gospel community. Lift each other's hands up, not so we can just win for the sake of winning or fight for the sake of fighting, but so that we can repent and we can forgive and we can submit to church government because the Lord is my banner. Not me winning something or looking better than you. He's forgiven me. I can repent to you and I can forgive you. He's done that for me. And you have been given wonderful elders to help you with that when the wheels fall off. Because they will. But he's left us, Jesus himself, to bear the burden of our sins so that all who are weary and heavy laden, cast your burdens onto him and you will have rest. You've already received that rest in Christ. Let us go from this place rejoicing in that fact. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our banner, that you have brought us our salvation. It is by grace through faith that we have been saved. You have given us the opportunity weekly, corporately with other believers to reflect on that redemption we have in Christ Jesus on the Lord's day, all the day. Encourage us in that matter as we reflected last week. Lord Jesus, you have placed us in a community where you are bringing in people from all of the cultures, nations, tribes, tongues, and languages all different backgrounds. People like Jethro, who suggest a way of dealing with conflict in government. And you use that to our benefit, that the burden would be spread. Lord Jesus, I am thankful for the spreading of the burden in our church. May you continue to raise up other men to, to do that with us and to encourage us in the fight of faith and the, the dealing with, of conflict, the disputes that come up. May you allow us 
as much as possible to go home in peace, knowing that the one who is our peace has already granted it to us eternally. We pray in his name. Amen.